Olivia couldn't wait. It was 4.30. The afternoon seemed to have dragged on endlessly, but now she just had to hold on for another half an hour and she'd be out. Yeah, she had a long commute home, then she had to eat, but she could just nuke something quick in the microwave. Then it was off to the monster's den. I suppose there were those that might say she should never have entered the monster's den in the first place. But she was never about to tell anyone the hold that the monster had over her. On rare occasions, she saw someone she vaguely knew in the den, but they never acknowledged each other. They just went about what they had come there for, to feed the monster. Didn't happen to everybody, but to the select few, once they had entered the den, the monster's tendrils would wind their way through their pores, up through their veins, and into their hearts. Once the monster had taken over their heart, they were overcome with an insatiable desire to feed the monster. But tonight was different. For so many nights she had fed the monster, and it had just continued to drain her more and more. But tonight Olivia could feel it. The monster was going to feed her this evening. And so she entered the casino with a sense of great excitement. Tonight was the night she was going to hit it big. She just knew it. Eli was beyond excited. Yes, he knew he was feeding the monster, but it was going to feed him back so much. He had his heavy-duty Dodge Ram pickup with his trailer and two jet skis that he and his girlfriend would take out to the lake on weekends and vacations. He had to limit out all five of his credit cards to do it, but he got the best camping equipment, jet skis, and all the paraphernalia to go with them. But now he couldn't believe it. He had just enough credit left to buy the Malibu Wake Setter ski boat that he'd been dreaming of. Now, when he went to the lake, his friends would come skiing with him on his boat and bring their booze to his campsite. He hadn't thought about how he would make the payments. He was already strapped to make the payments on all his other debts. All he could think about was his summer days on the lake as he signed the sales and finance agreement and fed the monster. Emily had waited all week. She almost never went all week without feeding the monster. But this was what she had been waiting for. She couldn't wait, and it was almost here. The monster had been beckoning her like it only did once a year. So, like the Thanksgiving guest who fasts until the big meal, she had been refraining from feeding the monster until the big moment. And now it had arrived. As soon as it was five, she was out of here. Fortunately, she worked downtown, so she was only a few blocks away. Just a few blocks and she would be at Nordstrom's for their big anniversary sale. She was so excited. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 47, Feeding the Monster. I start this episode with a confession. I falsely advertised this podcast. I said it was a podcast in which we would examine our history in order to analyze where we are at this particular note in history and why we failed to act aggressively to prevent global warming. All that's true, but I'm afraid I've left out an important element, America's budget deficit. 
which I'll cover in this episode. The omission was intentional. I left it out because no one wants to hear about the deficit these days, but it's important. We can't just continue to ignore it. You've listened this far. Give me just one podcast to talk about this. We can't understand where we are now at this juncture in history without understanding where our country stands fiscally. Since we're going to be talking about some economic issues this episode, let me start with just a few definitions of some terms I'll be using so that we're sure we're all on the same page. GDP means gross domestic product, which is the total monetary or market value of all the finished goods and services produced by a country in a specific time period. For our purposes, that period will be one year. The federal deficit refers to the amount which federal spending exceeds federal revenue, that is, mostly taxes, that the national government takes in over a given period of time. Again, for our purposes, that'll be one year. The national debt is the total amount of deficits that accrue year after year. So, to understand where we are now, let's go back to President Kennedy and work our way to today, president by president. When John F. Kennedy took office, the national debt stood at $289 billion. He added $23 billion to the deficit, and his successor, Lyndon Johnson, during the Vietnam War, added another $42 billion leaving Richard Nixon a national debt of almost $354 billion. During his five years as president during the Vietnam War, Nixon increased the national debt to $475 billion. And his vice president, Gerald Ford, who finished his term, added another $224 billion, essentially doubling the debt from where it stood at the end of the Johnson years. Then, during the stagflation years of the 1970s, Jimmy Carter added $229 billion, adding another 43% to the national debt. Then we get to Ronald Reagan. The economy hummed along pretty well during his eight years in office, and so the federal deficit should have done very well under him. Yet his plan to pay off the national debt by cutting taxes is so-called trickle-down theory, didn't work so well, and the national debt skyrocketed under his watch. By the end of his presidency, the national debt stood at $2.9 trillion. George Bush Sr. only had four years in office, but added another $1.5 trillion to the deficit. This was in spite of his increasing taxes to try and keep the deficit down. In his eight years in office, Bill Clinton added a total of $1.4 trillion to the national debt. Yet with a lot of work to restructure welfare and other entitlement programs, the national bureaucracy, and the military after the fall of the Soviet Union, he was finally able to reduce government spending below federal revenue. That is, our government was finally no longer operating at a deficit by the end of his presidency. George Bush Jr. put a stop to that. With two wars plus a tax cut for the wealthy, he doubled the federal debt. Now, instead of $5.8 trillion, the U.S. had a debt of $11.7 trillion. 
Is this starting to sound scary? Good. It should. But hold on to your hat. The insanity is about to kick into overdrive. When Barack Obama took office, the national debt was $11.7 trillion. He took office as the Great Recession was just getting underway and argued that he needed large deficits to get us out of the recession. Okay, that's standard modern economic theory, but we were fully out of the recession by 2011. In 2016, he was still running a deficit of almost $1.5 trillion. Not counting his first year in office, in which the budget was largely set before he started, he averaged annual deficits of over a trillion dollars. This includes the years that the economy was doing great. When he left, the federal deficit was $20 trillion. But wait, we still have Donald Trump to go. He only had four years in office. Yet one more massive tax cut for the wealthy left our federal deficits at significantly over $1 trillion a year and over $3.1 trillion during the COVID year of 2020, a figure which may yet be revised up significantly as all the numbers finally come in. Is Biden intending to stop this slide into ever-increasing debt at all? No. His projected budget for his first year in office is in the red by $1.8 trillion. The U.S. has a GDP of $19.5 trillion. In 2020, it ran a budget deficit of $3.1 trillion. That is, over a 15% deficit. Biden's proposed deficit for 2020 is $1.8 trillion. With all of this, our modest national debt of less than $300 billion when John F. Kennedy took office is now $30 trillion. In other words, when Kennedy told us to ask not what our country could do for us, but what we could do for our country, the national debt was a mere 1% of what it is now. These numbers are so big, they're seriously difficult to wrap our heads around. So how much is a trillion dollars? It would take 600 million years for you to save a trillion dollars by stashing them in your piggy bank at the rate of $50,000 per year. A trillion dollars is a stack of dollar bills so tall that if you stack them one atop another, your pile of dollar bills would reach 67,866 miles high. Our national debt is now so high that if we were to decide to suddenly pay it off, it would take $230,000 per taxpayer to pay it off. But how does this translate practically? What does a $30 trillion deficit mean? Don't we have to pay interest on all this debt? Yes. To fund all that debt, the U.S. government sells treasury bonds to investors and uses this money from its investors to fund all of its deficit spending. So surely, with all of the interest the U.S. is now paying on the $30 trillion, we must be devoting a huge proportion of our national budget to payment of this debt, no? After all, we just talked about how much a trillion dollars is. It's a stack of bills, 67,866 miles high. $30 trillion would stretch from the Earth to the Moon and back, four times 
with change left over? How are you going to pay the interest on that kind of debt? Actually, the answer is quite simple. Reduce the interest rates. You know these low interest rates that everyone's been raving about? They've got the lowest interest rate on their home mortgage ever? Well, that applies to U.S. Treasury bonds as well. People keep flocking to them, buying them in droves, and keeping the price low. Interest rates were higher in the first decade of the 21st century. So even though in the later years of the George Bush Jr. administration, the federal deficit was about a third of what it is now, it consumed 8.5% of the federal budget. But falling interest rates meant that even though the federal deficit has since tripled, payment of interest on the national debt has remained roughly the same. That's a good deal, huh? As a nation, we get to live far beyond our means, but don't have to pay any more for it than we did when our national debt was only a third of what it is now. What could possibly be the downside? Oh yeah, interest rates aren't going to stay where they are. That's, of course, the one constant in economics. Things always change, including interest rates. When? Who knows? That's the thing about economies. They're nonlinear. That is, they don't follow directly prescribed rules and are notoriously difficult to predict. And economists are notoriously bad at predicting them. One thing we know for sure is that interest rates will go back up again. Should they return to the even historically moderate rates they were at during the Bush Jr. administration, we can expect they'd consume not 8.5% of our budget, but triple that, about 25% of our federal budget. But that's only assuming that Congress and the President get off their current spending and tax-cutting spree and return federal spending and taxation to more historic levels. As this episode drops in November of 2021, inflation has skyrocketed from just over 1% where it stood in January and where it's hovered for most of the past five years to over 6%. Administration officials keep assuring us that this is just a short-term anomaly caused by a buying binge that Americans are suddenly going on and that it will soon come back once the supply chain catches up with the demand with all the money that the government has been dumping into the economy for so long. I'm highly skeptical. After all, every Econ 101 student is told that inflation is caused by too many dollars chasing too few goods. I'm not sure what the various administrations and the Fed have thought would happen adding all the money that they have added to the economy over the past 20 years. Perhaps they thought that no one would have to pay the piper on their watch. Okay, so assume that interest rates double what they are now, which would return them to pretty close to where they've been historically. That would mean that interest rates on government bonds would double, and payment on our national debt would be a little bit more than 16% of our federal budget. That's more than our federal government spends for benefits for all federal retirees and veterans, all transportation infrastructure, education, science and medical research, and all non-security international aid combined. So what are we going to do when interest eats up a full additional 16% of our national budget instead of just 8.5%? Simply borrow even more? 
it would only take six years at that rate to add an additional 16% to our national budget. What then? Borrow an additional 32% instead of 16%? You see where this would end up. As I record this, we're enjoying a period of historically low interest rates. And here, of course, I'm only talking about a return to the interest rates that are of more historically average levels. But just as interest rates can last for a time at historically low levels as they have recently, they can also climb to levels that are historically unusually high as they did in the 1970s after the Vietnam War. Our current flirtation with inflation might indicate that this is where we could be headed. Look at it this way. President Nixon needed some way to finance the war, and he knew he'd be unpopular if he raised taxes. So he decided on financing it through deficit spending, that is, simply printing the extra money the war cost and injecting it into the American economy through the sale of government bonds. The result, of course, was that after years of printing excess money, there were the same amount of goods and services in the economy, but there was far more money available to buy them. Whenever this happens, the result is always the same. Inflation. And so it was at the end of the Vietnam War. Inflation rose from the average of from 1% to 3% where it had been since the 1960s to 11% in 1974, the last year of the war. This sent the economy into a prolonged recession, and inflation didn't return to pre-war levels until 1983. Jimmy Carter was, of course, accused of being a bad president but he had inherited the stagflation bequeathed to him by President Nixon. I've often wondered what kind of president he would have been if he would have been a president in good economic times. Now, our government has been engaged in a binge of deficit spending ever since the beginning of the Obama presidency that makes Richard Nixon look like an amateur at deficit financing. The deficits have been far, far larger than those we occurred during the Vietnam War. Yet Democrats and Republicans alike assure us not to worry. These deficits won't cause inflation. Really? I'm not reassured. Americans are reassured by Democratic and Republican reassurances that we have no inflation worries at all. We shouldn't be. Inflation is a tax that constantly reduces our ability to buy the goods we need in our daily life and for pleasure and entertainment. Even worse, it acts as a wealth tax for those closer to retirement age and those who are retired, who have bought U.S. bonds. If a government should suffer extreme inflation of 12.5% for four years, it would mean that the government bonds that a retiree had bought before this round of inflation at full price would be worth only one-half of what the bonds were when they were purchased. I'm a layman in economic matters. But here's what I know. When a person runs up too large a credit card debt, they reach a point that they can no longer continue to meet their monthly interest payments. When a government's national debt reaches a certain point, investors will become worried about the government's ability to pay the debt back and will stop buying bonds at the rate that they historically have purchased that government's bonds. The credit rating agencies will downgrade the government's bonds and the government will need to increase the interest rates they are paying on those bonds in order to get people to buy them. When this happens, 
the percentage of the government's budgets that used to go towards paying the interest on these bonds will balloon significantly, and the amount of money that the government has to pay for all other sectors of its budget will shrink commensurately. At what level does this happen? In Greece, it happened when their debt-to-GDP ratio was about 175%. In the U.S., our debt-to-GDP ratio stands at about 130%. In 2010, our debt-to-GDP ratio was 90%. If we continue with anything close to our current federal deficits, we'll easily reach the debt-to-GDP ratio that caused Greece's economic crisis within 10 or 11 years. You can play with the numbers and say, well, if we lower our deficits by a certain amount, we won't get there so quickly, but national debts are cumulative, so that would, at best, make it only a few more years before we reached our debt crisis. Or you can argue that, but the U.S. dollar is the currency that foreign countries tie their currencies to, so we won't reach the debt crisis at the same level that Greece did. I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a the bigger they are, the harder they fall argument. In other words, if the U.S. dollar is the currency that the rest of the world pegs its currencies to, which it largely is, when the U.S. should enter such an economic crisis, we would drag the rest of the world with us, only compounding the magnitude of the crisis for ourselves as well as for everybody else. And what would such a crisis look like? Perhaps sometime in the early 2030s, after another decade of high federal deficits, the U.S. enters a recession and the GDP drops. Traditional American economic wisdom is that during recessions, the government should increase spending in order to stimulate the economy. Congress passes a budget with a large deficit, and a large round of U.S. Treasury bonds are approved for sale. But perhaps at that point, the Central Bank of the People's Republic of China looks at this and decides, the U.S. has very high national debt. Their debt-to-GDP ratio is in the dangerous range, and they announce that they will not buy U.S. Treasury bonds at the rate they're being offered. Other countries look at the Chinese and begin to make similar decisions. As the U.S. fails to sell the number of bonds it's authorized, Moody's Credit Rating Agency and others take a second look, and downgrade the U.S. government's credit rating. Domestic investors get spooked, and they stop buying U.S. government bonds. But the U.S. has a large deficit it has to cover. So it raises the interest rates on the bonds significantly. The recession deepens. Not only is there increased interest to pay on the bonds, but inflation climbs to 11% as it did following the Vietnam War. Now the government is paying so much of its budget in interest, the deep recession falls into depression. The government just doesn't have the tax revenues it needs to cover the budget. Does it cut the defense budget? Does it cut entitlements? Does it raise taxes? It has no choice. It has to do all of these. But people are without jobs. They can't pay taxes. They need unemployment benefits. But the government can't afford this. Does it let these people go hungry? There's no money in the Treasury, 
and the cost of selling more bonds is just far too high. Nobody's buying. The government misses a payment on its treasury bonds. It has defaulted on its debt for the first time in its history. Americans across the country who have invested their savings in these bonds are unable to pay their mortgages. We've got to stop and think this through. We have to avoid this kind of scenario at all costs. It's what you realize when you read a lot of history. People believe that these catastrophic scenarios won't happen to them. The Roman Empire has always been around. It couldn't possibly fall. Such disasters have happened to others, but here in America? Such a scenario would be unthinkable, so it couldn't happen to us. We tell ourselves things like, we're the richest country the world has ever known. No. The greatest generation gave us the richest country the world has ever known. The prodigal generation became addicted to a lifestyle that it felt it was entitled to, but couldn't afford. Under the most optimistic of scenarios, if every country in the world should wake up and take major steps to control climate change in 2022, global warming will still continue to increase, causing increasingly severe climate-related disasters for the indeterminate future. Yet the one thing we know for sure is that we're not there yet. As this episode is being recorded, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, just wrapped up in Glasgow, Scotland. It was generally well attended, though there were notable absences, including Xi Jinping of China, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, and Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, nations that will have to join in commitments to reduce greenhouse gas consumption if we are to meet the generally accepted goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. So, positive advances were definitely made at COP26, but not enough to get us to meet the goal. There is no doubt our world's largest greenhouse gas emitters will still have to get on board if we are to avoid the most potentially catastrophic effects of climate change. One thing we've noticed in our whirlwind tour of history is that a country's willingness to embrace social and economic progress only happens during times of strong or thriving economies. It was during the boom times of the first decade of the 1900s, the 1910s, and the 1920s that the progressive era saw all the great changes that that era brought us. It was during the incredible economic times of the 1950s and 60s that we saw great advances in civil rights and other areas, including the first flowering of the environmental movement. And it was with the stock market crash of 1929 and the subsequent Great Depression, and with the stagflation and recession of the 1970s, that the progressive changes of these eras stopped. There's a word that I fear all Americans may come to know well and will come to hate intensely. The word? Austerity. This episode is a warning, not a death sentence. 
There's still time to avoid the massive worldwide financial crisis warned of in this episode. But there's no way that we will be able to avoid it without some pain. We've waited far too long to heed the warning signs of our overspending. At this point, everybody will need to sacrifice both governmental spending and tax cuts that they feel are crucial. The good news is that if we do so, we'll be able to reduce our annual deficits and stop our reliance on deficit spending before our national debt becomes too high and we face the nightmare scenario I've warned of in this episode. It'll be painful. That's inevitable. But that's the cost of living beyond our means. Still, this pain isn't austerity. Austerity will come when our debt-to-GDP ratio reaches levels that will require a downgrading of our national credit. Back in the first decade of the 2000s, people spoke about the PIGS countries, an acronym for Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Countries that had overspent became addicted to government programs they couldn't afford and refused to pay taxes that would have been required to sustain that level of spending. These were the countries that those of us who are interested in such things were watching to see who was headed for a fall. Let's look at two of those countries. Ireland's debt-to-GDP ratio reached 119% in 2012 and 13, and had grown from a mere 24% in 2007. It was clear that it was headed up far too quickly, and Ireland was headed for a fall. Ireland took the warnings seriously, tightened their fiscal belts, made painful financial changes, and today, they're back down to below 60% debt to GEP. They've turned their economy around and now enjoy a thriving economy. Depending on which metric you use, it ranks 5th or 6th in the world in terms of GDP per capita. Greece, on the other hand, didn't heed the warning signs. Their national credit was downgraded, and austerity was forced on them. Unemployment rates reached as high as 25%. Government services were cut back severely. Greek weathered a severe recession and experienced strikes, social unrest, and rioting. There's a phenomenon that occurs when people live beyond their means and finance the difference between the lifestyle they can afford the lifestyle they choose to live with credit. It's the same phenomenon which I've sadly seen with an elderly person or couple who begins to gamble chronically and runs down their life savings. It's obvious that the former will end up in bankruptcy and the latter will end in seniors losing their life savings and living out their years in austerity. Anyone can see it. Anyone, that is but the person addicted to credit cards or to gambling. Both are in denial. They just don't see where this is going. The point is, their inability or refusal to see the inevitable result of their excess spending is going to result in their inescapable financial demise. They do this because the drive to spend money, to live a lifestyle they can't afford, etc., is too strong and causes them to close their eyes to the inescapable result of their financial folly. I've named this phenomenon feeding the monster. 
As I continue to point out, many phenomena that occur on microscales also occur on macroscales as well. Feeding the monster is one of them. Beginning with Reagan, Americans got hooked on deficit spending, wanting more services from their government than they could afford. These deficits started modestly from today's perspective, and, with a brief pause during the Clinton administration, have increased in size with each subsequent president. Obviously, each year's deficit has added more and more to our national debt, to the place where we are now only a few years away from the debt level that caused Greece its financial crisis. Yet, like the anti-heroes of our opening vignette, we're closing our eyes and pretending it's not coming. But coming it is. There's kind of a ridiculous game of not me that senators and representatives have been playing. If they're Republican, they say that we could balance the budget if the Democrats would just cut social spending, but they won't cut defense spending or raise taxes. Democrats say they could balance the budget if they could just cut defense spending and raise taxes, but they won't touch entitlements. That's all ludicrous. There's no way to avoid an economic crisis at this point without cutting everything and raising taxes. I haven't convinced you that it's time to raise your voice and start demanding fiscal responsibility from your congressmen and women? Consider this. We're headed for a climate cliff. Right now, we're not taking the steps that are necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change. When will this happen? These things are notoriously hard to predict, but the answer seems to be that some of the very serious effects of climate change could begin to hit about the same time that we can expect a major recession, if not depression, if we don't start making changes now. Remember how I said that history shows that societies are willing to make positive changes during times of financial plenty? and can only focus on their personal well-being during times of financial crisis? The implications of this, in the context of climate change, are ominous. The choice is ours. We can follow the Greek model or the Ireland model. I can only pray that we finally wake up and follow the path of the Irish. Our politicians will do whatever their constituents demand, we must begin the conversation that tells our politicians that we will hold them to account for driving us to financial Armageddon. Your read this week is This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly by Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff. Reinhardt and Rogoff are economists and write for an academic audience. But if you don't mind their dry academic style, they give you an extraordinary tour of financial crises weathered by countries throughout the centuries. The book's name comes from what the authors noted was the attitude they noticed again and again by people right before their country fell into its financial crisis. Time and again, people on the precipice of a crisis looked at their economy and said, gee, we're doing fine. I know our debt has gotten out of hand, and I know that other countries have defaulted on their debt when they've incurred debt like us. But this time, we know more. We're more financially sophisticated. This time is different. Think our current financial situation is different? 
think again. This week's read may not be an enjoyable one, but it's an important one. See you next week.